You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! <laughs> what would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on. A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my god, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast. Consequence Podcast Network. Hi, everyone. I am Graham Russell from Air Supply, and I'm going to give you the story behind the song on Consequence. Welcome, listeners, to the story behind the song. I'm your host, Peter Chotty of Creative Media. It's easy to underestimate Graham Russell and Russell Hitchcock, who make up Australian super duo Air Supply. In a post-punk early new wave era 40-plus years ago that was bursting with attitude, neon, and big hair, the two were intentionally and authentically downright conventional. The two Russells were masters of counter-programming, releasing a string of heartfelt dramatic ballads and love songs that topped the charts and continued to serve as the soundtrack to endless proms around the world. Let's face it, we all know and yes love Air Supply's songs. How could we not? They embody a certain timeless universality and deep down, we are all softies. Beginning in 1980, Russell and Russell released seven consecutive top five singles in the US, a remarkable feat only accomplished by the Beatles at the time. They have since sold more than 100 million albums and played over 5,300 sold out shows, grateful road warriors who still perform 130 shows each year, much to the delight of their fans who are self-proclaimed airheads. Air Supply songwriter, guitarist, and singer Graham Russell and I discussed their most iconic sing-along song, All Out of Love, a song that ends their shows in Float Out from Russell and a 30-minute moment of divine intervention. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with Graham Russell of legendary super duo Air Supply. Just say that I was so wrong. You said you were, Graham, you said you were recording an an album. So tell me about that. Well, we just recently decided to record an album, another album. We haven't recorded one for 14 years. During that space, the industry has changed a lot. Not a lot of artists record albums anymore. They do singles, release those, and then do it that way. And we were thinking about different ways. And we said, well, should we do that? And then we saw that a lot of artists like ourselves have been around forever, are still making albums. We said, you know... That's that's our format. That's how we began and that's our career. So let's make another album. So that's what we're doing, you know. 
We're in the middle of it right now. Good for you. And when do you see that being released? Hopefully by the end of the year, simply because we don't record in a large block of time. We kind of do it in pieces. Our touring schedule is so thick and heavy. We need to block the time out. Like, for instance, we were in Los Angeles earlier this week, uh, the end of last week, and we'll be there again in April for uh, a week. Then we'll pick week different weeks when we can get in there, you know. Gotcha, gotcha. How did you and Russell first meet? We were both in Jesus Christ Superstar, and on the first day of rehearsal, neither one of us knew anybody in the cast, and we didn't know each other. But it was a strange thing, because when all the, you know, there were 34 people in the chorus, they were all brand new. Most of them were in other productions, but we weren't. And as fortune would have it, Russell sat right next to me. And we were both a little shy. We didn't know anybody. A lot of the cast was showing off and singing. And then we started to sing. And after, and I just heard this amazing voice. And I thought, oh, my God, what a great voice. A switch went off in my brain and said, you've got to meet this guy. You've got to be bold and, and introduce yourself, which I did. And straight away, I just turned to him. I said, excuse me, what a great voice you've got. And straight away, we, we just became friends. And there was some weird coincidences, like we're both born three days apart in the same month. We both saw the Beatles when we were 14 live we have the same name neither of us has a brother it's kind of it was weird there was a lot of these similarities and which drew us closer together and when we were between shows in superstar i would take my guitar and i would just sing and russell of course was sat next to me in the the men's chorus room so he would just jump in and sing with me but it sounded so good and people used to stop by the dressing room and say, wow, you guys sound really good. And so from the beginning, we knew there was something going on. Well, I read another thing that the two of you, and I can't even imagine, but the two of you who tour over uh, 130 times annually, over 5,300 shows, all these years together, and you've never had a fight. Is that real? It is true. And people find it hard to believe. <laughs> the thing is this, you know, in the early years when we used to double up with the band and the crew, Russell and I shared a room and we got to know each other really well. We're very similar personalities. We're very tidy. And things like that may not seem important, but they really are. I got to know him and he got to know me. And we kind of know when to back off and when to push forward. We've learned that over the years. And now Russell lives in California and mm. has for most of his career. But I choose to be away. I love nature and hiking and stuff like that. Russell prefers to be inside. So we're the opposites. But we just know each other so well. Plus, Russell is the lead singer of the band. And I don't want to be a lead singer because I'm not. I want to be the songwriter and he doesn't want to write songs. So both our jobs within the band, they don't cross over each other. There's no egos. You know, when usually I'll bring half a dozen songs to Russell that he hasn't heard, but I do pretty good demos before they come to him. And he's the first one I show them to. And he knows they're going to be pretty good or I wouldn't come to him. And he, he always says, oh, wow, this is great. This is great. But there's never... I want to sing this and I want to sing that. It's it's his choice. Whatever he wants to sing, he sings. And so, and he'll say, we should sing that together or you sing the lead on that. And it's just this friendly atmosphere. And we go, oh, okay, great. And we do it. And it sounds great, you know. So we've never changed from that concept. 
There's no egos at all. I get in my spaces and when we're on yeah. the road and because I'm I'm constantly writing, even when we're traveling, we're on planes or we're sitting at an airport. And even when I'm having a conversation with someone, there's a song in my head that that's uh, singing to me. A, a song maybe I haven't finished, I need to finish it. So there's always something going on. And he knows that. So we don't engage in deep conversations very often you know he never asked me how did you write that song what's going on there he never he's never asked me how i write the song he just accepts it and he knows that sometimes i'm gone and i'm over there you know i'm staring out the windows because i'm i'm my brain's working you know so it's just right. a wonderful relationship and also russell loves to he likes to stay at home he's a homebody and and i'm very aware of that so i like to take care of my side of the business. I like to bring the songs and, um, and make the albums. And I know that he loves that. And it gives him, I think, a sense of security, knowing that I'm going to take care of that. And But what he needs to take care of is getting on stage and being that great entertainer that he is, because he really is a unique entertainer. And, and he does that. And as long as he does that, he knows... I'm happy and he's happy with the songs. So it's like a beautiful Garden of Eden, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there you go. That doesn't happen that often. And then tell everybody the story of the name of the band. It's kind of interesting because we were in Superstar and Superstar was coming to an end and we knew it, obviously. We had about a month to go and we'd already recorded two tracks. We got signed to CBS in Australia. And they signed us to a, a single because they were waiting to see if it would be successful. We didn't have a name. And the producer of the two songs said, yeah, we, you've got to have a name by tomorrow morning. And we said, <laughs> OK. We said, OK, whatever we come up with, we'll call you and that'll be the name. So that night I had this dream and I dreamt of this massive billboard that was pure white. And on the perimeter were these flashing lights like going off so fast. And they were all colored lights. And in this, the middle of this billboard, there were two words in big black letters, and it said, air supply. And I thought, God, what the hell is that? And I told Russell in the morning, I said, I haven't got a name, but I had this weird dream about this thing, air supply. I don't know what it, what it is. Maybe I'm going to have a heart attack or something, you know. Uh, and he said, okay, let's go with that name. I went, oh, really? It kind of doesn't denote anything, you know. It doesn't, nothing comes to mind. And and he said, well, we're both air signs, which we are. He ah. said, that, he said that, that's enough. <laughs> so yeah. that was the name. That's pretty incredible. Yeah, I, I guess it's kind of unusual. But, you know, at the same time, you know, we were on the threshold of, of our career. We didn't know to what extent, but... Yeah. To get to that stage and just be signed for a single, in our minds, was incredible. Our life was fulfilled now. But of course, we had no idea that was just the beginning. But uh, consequently, we kept that name. The single came out and it became the biggest song in Australia in years. And suddenly we were launched into this career. So we left Superstar and the very next day, our single was sitting at number one. And we were like, oh, my God, what's going to happen now? You know, nothing else incredible can happen. But, of course, it did. So we were on that threshold. We were in Jesus Christ Superstar. So it's got all these religious things going on with it. So when you think of the billboard, it's not that far removed. You know, it's like this. It's like the universe 
saying, okay, guys, you're going now. Here, here you go. Here's the name. Let's go. And we've always thought that there was some cosmic force guiding us, you know. I, I don't want to get too into that because neither Russell nor myself are religious people, but we've always thought it was predestined that we work together. With all the things that happened, it just was. Plus, we were the probably the two most unlikely people to be in a band because we didn't have the training. Russell was in a, a band for like a few weeks before air supply but that was several a long time when he was a teenager so he didn't have really aspirations to being a successful rock and roll band and i know in australia there are a lot of people in that have been in bands for for such a long time trying to get a hit record that couldn't and we came along we didn't know what we were doing and then suddenly boom there it happened and it just kept happening you know it's weird yeah, I, I've done. I've had enough interviews with with different artists, and it's so interesting what you said about catching that wave. There's a wave there, and you grasp onto it. Yeah. And had you not, then it none of the the rest of it would have happened. And so yeah. you you had this almost divine inspiration yeah. that you you seized upon, didn't overthink it, and look what happens as a result of that. It's pretty incredible. When you look at it that way, I think it's definitely unusual. But when when we were first in Superstar and we, be, Russell and I, became friends and started to sing together, there was this. I always felt that Superstar was a, a ladder for us to some somewhere else, and I knew we had eighteen months to get something going. And Russell and I sang a lot in clubs after Superstar. The show would end at ten thirty. We'd go and get booked into a club. The two of us, then we'd have uh, the lady that played Mary Magdalene. She joined us too. So we, had, it was three of us. We didn't have a name, but we had this incredible three-part harmony. When Superstar came to town, they knew about us and they would book us in all these clubs. So we were already singing together, uh, a lot of my original songs too. And so we were kind of g getting ready for something, but it wasn't until the record came out that we realized what it was and Superstar ended because suddenly... When Superstar finished, we were kicked out the door, the show was over, and uh, most everybody in the show went back to getting a, their day jobs. Well, we didn't have one because Air Supply began, so that became our full-time job, you know, which is what we wanted. We planned for it for 18 months, and then it happened, you know. Well, good for you. That's, that's amazing. So what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break, and then okay. we're going to dig right into the story behind the song of All Out of Love. So we'll be right back, everybody, with Graham Russell of Air Supply. Okay, we are back. So Lost in Love was the fifth album that you yeah. created. Mm. And All Out of Love is on that album. Mm. And what was the state of mind of you and Russell going into the studio at that time, going into the fifth album? Well, Lust, Lust in Love was a hit in Australia uh, before the US, two years before. So we knew that it, it had potential to be successful. I've always loved that track. It's so simple and just beautiful. It really epitomizes our style, if you like, just a vocal band with simple songs with a really great message. But when we knew, too, that after Lost in Love, we had to come up with something that was even better. If, if you want to call it better, or we, it had to be just as successful. All Out of Love was, it's probably my favorite song, 
but it's the first song I wrote on the piano. I used to tinkle around on the piano, and then suddenly I, I just started writing this beautiful phrase. I knew it was cool because the hairs on my arms started to tingle and the back of my neck, and I knew I was onto something, so I was treading very carefully, and I didn't want to go down the wrong rabbit hole. I just kept playing it, and I kept, I kept playing the chorus, and then suddenly, as I knew what would happen, I went into the verse, which is just a little bit of the chorus. And then there was that, the beautiful uh, middle eight, you know, what am I thinking of, all that. And it all just fell out. So within half an hour, the song was finished, the lyrics and everything. And I, I remember just sitting back and I thought, oh, wow, this is, this is very special. And it's almost like, oh, I, I, because I, I recorded it on a little recorder and I, I was almost, I don't want to listen back because I think it's really good. But if I listen back and it's not, I'm going to be really disappointed. And I waited for like a couple of hours. I thought, okay, I've got to listen to it. And I listened back to it, just the rough. And I went, oh, God, it's there. It's all there. So I, I called Russell and I said, I, I think we've got an, another song here that we need to record. And, of course, we did. But here's an interesting twist. All I Don't Love was a hit in Australia before Clive heard it, right? Two years before. Cl- Clive Davis. Yeah. For everybody out there. Yeah. Clive Davis, the the legendary uh, guru of mu- the music industry in our generation. Of course, he licensed Lost in Love. And then when it came to All Out of Love, he said, oh, I've, he said, I've heard All Out of Love too. And he said, you've got to change some of the lyrics that you had in the Australian version. And, you know, originally it was, I'm all out of love. I want to arrest you, which is now I think of it, it's really weird. But in Australia in those days, arrest meant to get your attention, of course. I mean, that's what arrest means. It's, I'm going to get your attention. But when Clive heard that, he says, no, we've got to change that. He said, if you change that, you'll have a huge hit record. You know, for a songwriter to change words is kind of a difficult thing, and you have to weigh it up. I, I, I thought about it overnight, and I thought, God, I don't want, you know, I'm already having success. Why should I change a few words, you know? I, I can stick to my guns. And then this other gentleman, Billy Michelle, his name was, he was from a publishing company that I'd just entered into an agreement with. And he said, he pulled me aside and he kind of whispered in my, he said, he said, do yourself a favor. He says, listen to Clive, because if, if you listen to him, you'll have the biggest hit of your career. And I said, okay. So I listened. I, so I sat down with Clive and I said, okay, what needs to be changed, Clive? Because I thought he was talking a major rewrite. And he says, no, no. He said, it's two lines. I said, you can't say it arrests you. So he said, I'm all out of... What about I'm so lost without you? Uh, and then the next line should be, I already had it. I know you were right. Uh, he said, what about believing for so long? And so I also knew at that point, if Clive suggested two lines, they were the lines that he wanted. So I agreed. And I said, yeah, of course. I mean, songwriters nowadays change things all the time, as I've learned. But I changed it and the rest became history. And when I when I agreed to change it, because Clive has an interest in the song, of course. He said, whatever I get from that song, I'm going to donate to charity, which he did and does, which I, I thought was him. very, yeah, I thought it was very, very large of him. And, uh, you know, we had a great relationship and we went on to an even greater relationship with the band, with Clive. But I, and I learned then, you know, sometimes you've got to give in a little and listen to other people 
because they might have some some light to shed on on yours. And so I, that was a great lesson for me. It became a huge hit, and I thought, great, I'm 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 very happy with it, you know. Plus, when we were in the studio with it, with that version, Russell, I was supposed to sing. Uh, Russell was supposed to sing the verses, rather. And he went in there. And this is an example of our relationship. He kept singing. He's going, I'm lying alone. And he goes, nah, it doesn't sound right. I said, no, keep doing it, you know. He says, nah, it's not right. He says, you, you come and try it. I said, well, it's too high for me. I can't sing that, that C with conviction. And he says, now come on and sing it. And I thought, okay. And our producer was there, Harry Maslin. And he said, he said to me before I went in, he said, you should do it. You can do it. So I went, okay, I can do it. And I went in and I sang it and it sounded great. And then Russell sang the chorus and it just, the heavens opened up. It was just beautiful, you know. And it's, it's those moments where Russell and my relationship was great because he convinced me to do something that I didn't think I should do. So, but you know, once again, you listen and you, and you wait. I think it's great to listen and not sometimes don't talk, just let other people do the talking and then make a, make a judgment. And we've always done that with songs. And this was the greatest moment, you know, it really was hearing, hearing the song back. It's like, Oh my God. (laughs) It still, it still gets you. It sounds like. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we always close our show with it and people wait for it. But, I mean, people cry and they're laughing and, and they, they remember the song because it's still on the radio all the time. It's been in about 20 movies. But it's, it's just one of those songs that, that gets to you. And, and I'm glad that it's, that it's our song, it's our record, because if it wasn't, I would wish that it was, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, I have so many. I have so many questions about that because you were saying that you were kind of tinkering around on the piano. Yeah. And it came. It came to you. The melody came to you, and then the lyrics, the words, mm. flowed out of you, and all of this happened mm. in about thirty minutes, which mm. is remarkable. But what's interesting, again, I've had enough conversations with great artists where Mm -hmm. that's not unusual. It's some Mm. of their most iconic songs just happen so quickly. Yeah, I've learned, I know a few songwriters and they all have a different way of doing things, but a lot of them work that same way. It's, you know, when you've been writing songs for so many years, which fortunately I have, you, you figure out how it's, I don't think anybody knows how to write a song. I don't know how to do it. I just know what to do when inspiration is there. And I know when it's there. I just feel it. And and it's a beautiful thing. But unfortunately for me, it's usually at four in the morning when my creativity is at its peak. But I've got used to that now, and I love it so much because it's dark, it's quiet, I go down, I play my piano, play my guitars, and I'm not going to disturb anybody. The phone's not going to go. And and I can just listen. I, I just listen to whatever is out there, you know, that this thing in, in your mind. And it just tells me, it just says, now do this, do that, follow this. And, and I just, it's like a river and it just flows. And it's so beautiful. And I'm so lucky that I can still do this, you know, because when I was, I wrote my first song at 13 
And I thought, God, I really want to be a songwriter, but I don't know anything about music or anything at all. But I always wanted that. And for some reason, the universe chose me and it should have chosen another thousand John Williams to 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 work with but it, it chose me and I'm very thankful for that because it's a gift you know it really is well there's yeah there's no question and that's another interesting part of what you just said that it comes to you so early in the morning the nighttime shifting from the nighttime to the morning because that's another theme that I've heard so many times that uh, the mind something something happens with the mind while you're sleeping and so an idea comes to you and then it's a question did you then, I mean, now you we have our phones and we have our voice memos, but yeah. did you have a pad of paper next to you or anything yeah. like that? I used to have a pad of paper, but I used to have a very primitive uh, tape recorder that was pretty big. But that by the time I'd set it up and got it working, if it would work, the inspiration would be gone. So I had to write everything down on a pad. But nowadays, of course, I use voice memos on, on the phone. I used to have a really nice little stereo tape recorder but now i just use my phone because it's so fast and and i like hearing something back that's kind of rough because i know once i scrub it up it's going to be really cool so for me a little voice memo has got to be great from the very beginning it's got to grab me and and i know when it does and i know when it doesn't i mean i can start something and think it's great then half an hour later i go i'm going to play that again and if it doesn't, if it's still not there, I don't work on it again. I forget about it because I want to go for the really good stuff. And is your process or do you have one process where typically the music is first and then the lyrics f- flow afterwards? Normally for me, they both come together and I like it when they do because if you have something to latch on to, even if it's a title or a phrase, you've got a beginning uh, of the story, because every song has to be a story. Uh, see, you must remember that a song these days has to be over in three minutes. You've got to create a story with an incredible chorus and an ending in three minutes. So it's, that's quite a feat. Sometimes it, it all comes together. Sometimes it's just the music. It depends. It's very rarely the lyrics will come first because they need to fit into everything. You know, with all that, I'm all out of love, I want to arrest you. It just fitted into everything. But I'm all out of love, I'm so lost without you. That fits beautifully too. It's got to be that hand in the glove thing. It's just got to be compatible. And I don't know, it's a beautiful thing when, when it fits. It's like, a, it's like creation, you know, it's like life. you creating something out of nothing, which is a beautiful thing. I, I love it to death. But I'm, you know, I must say this, I was thinking before we came on air, and I knew we were going to do this, people get really excited about songs and songwriters and things. But I always think it's not that difficult if you really apply yourself and, and you devote yourself to it. But if you think about a songwriter as opposed to like a lawyer or a brain surgeon, which takes so much learning and study, uh, I, I think a songwriter is kind of way down on the list as far as uh, incredible careers go. Do you know what I mean? They're, I mean, brain surgeons don't get near, nearly enough recognition as, as a songwriter, you know? <laughs> when you have written 
not just this song, but so many timeless classics. I think you're selling, selling yourself short, first of all, but to be able to have created a, this catalog that's ongoing 50 years later, <laughs> that's, that must be, have, be an incredible feeling for you. It is. I, I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, I love it. And, you know, my songs have given me my life. You know, I live very nicely. I have a beautiful house, you know, cats and dogs and all that kind of thing. So every, <laughs> I mean, I look around at, at the things that I love and my songs have given me everything. So I owe them a lot, you know, and I owe the fact that the career I chose when I was a young teenager has come to fruition. And, you know, people ask me, what advice would you give anyone? And I say, well, if you, whatever you want to do, do it, but don't be put off by people that try to tell you not to do it. If you want to be anything, you can do it if, if you apply yourself, if you really want it. If you want it bad enough, you can do it. You know, I came from, uh, I was born in the middle of England in, uh, in a little village in Nottingham. And, you know, if everybody that left school, their destiny was probably to go down the pit and be a miner. You know, Nottingham is filled, is under, underground in Nottingham is England's biggest reserve of coal, or it used to be. I don't think they use it anymore, but my destiny was probably going down the pit, you know, being an apprenticeship or doing all that. And I just didn't want that. You know, I thought, no, I don't want to do that. But you can do anything you want, you know. And so, oh, well, I know what I was going to say. That's my advice to people is you can do it if you want to do it. You've just got to do it, you know, and don't don't quit. So many people, even in our early career, after we had success around the world, they would say, well, when are you going to, when are you going to change direction and come up with, uh, you know, heavier songs or whatever? And my answer would be, if you want heavier songs, there are thousands of bands you can go and listen to. But this is what we do. And plus, we didn't choose this genre, this type of music. It chose us, you know, and this is what we know so well because it's who we are. So we've never, we've never changed our course. We just, we've carved our own path. For, for us, the reward is much greater. Yeah. No, of course, because it's it's true to who you are. It's authentic. Yeah. You were saying that every song tells a story. Yeah. So the, the lyrics that flowed out of you and the music, all of this in such a short period of time, but was there a... Did, was it just words that you felt sounded right? Or was there some underlying story that was in your life or that mm. was in your mind that you were telling because it was that particular moment in time? Uh, I think, I think with any song, there's a part of it that is that moment. But, but funnily enough, all my, all my early songs, especially my early one, even Lost in Love, All Out of Love, and in the early 80s and the years preceding that, there was always some kind of loss. You know, I'm lost in love. I'm all out of love. I'm, I'm so lost without you and all this. And I think a lot of that stemmed from my early childhood years when, you know, I lost my mother when I was very, when I was 10 years old. And, and I didn't, I didn't speak to anyone for three months. Even I didn't go to school. I was devastated because I didn't know what was, how sick she was. And so I, I always thought that she gave, she gave me this gift because I didn't speak to anyone for months. And I used to write things down on a piece of paper. And I started to write them down and then I started to make them rhyme. So when people would ask me a question, 
I would re- write it down and show them, uh, and it would be in a rhyme. And it was really weird. When I came out of my shock and, and my uh, my devastation, I I had that there. I was already writing verses. So it was a natural thing for me to want to play the guitar and just play an instrument because I had all these words here that that I couldn't get out. I couldn't speak to anyone. So when I did speak, I had all these emotional things I needed to express. But you can't go up, as a, a 10, 11-year-old, you couldn't go up to someone and start talking about love and how lost you feel. So I, I wrote it down, and that's how I started to write songs. So I think my that loss was turned into finding something. I found my true self. There's a, sh- a shade of that in every one of my songs, I think, because I know I can go to that place in a song that maybe a lot of people can't talk about. You know, like I'm not afraid to, to talk about those feelings or love or anything with anyone, you know. But a lot of people are still, I find. And I think that Air Supply's music is a bridge to that place because I'm, I'm not afraid to talk about it. But in the past 20 or 30 years, it, I know it was difficult for men to talk about that topic, but I don't think so anymore, you know. But to answer your question briefly, yeah, there's a shade of that in every one of my songs. There's always, you know, if I write, as I were this morning, something kind of rocky, you know, a rock and roll song, which I do write, there's a part of that song where it comes down to something beautiful. There has to be that beautiful moment in in a rock and roll song. And, but I, that's unusual, but that's the way I do it. You know, I'm rocking out here, and then, oh, I've got to put this beautiful chord in <laughs> to bring people, make them cry, you know. <laughs> right. Well, it, that was that's beautifully said, and there, that's one of the reasons I think it touches so many people and gets everybody going is because it's this shared catharsis. of Yes. You know, and it brings back different feelings to different kinds of people. And, hmm. and it is timeless from not only people who have been around listening to your music for decades, like myself, hmm. but also you still have these songs that are playing at senior proms and things like that, which is yeah. pretty remarkable. So I'm going to take, <laughs> Graham, I'm going to take one more quick break and we'll be right back. And then I'm going to ask you some extra credit lightning round questions. Okay. Okay. okay we'll be right back with Graham Russell of Air Supply, everybody. All right, we are back with Graham. And so, Graham, I have to ask you, what is on endless loop right now when you're listening to music? Don't be disappointed because I don't listen to a lot. And I'll tell you why. Because what's on loop in my brain now is I'm working on three songs this morning. And I, I like to, now I like to work on different songs at the same time. I'll work on one, and if I get stuck on that, I'll move, and I keep moving, and they it it frees the other songs up. So they're all on uh, endless play in my brain at the moment. Uh, I'm, I haven't listened to anything for for a while, and I probably should to stay current, but I can't think of anything. You know, I love Adele. I think she's incredible, but she doesn't make an album that often. I mean, I love real classic singers like that, like Adele. I'd, I'd love us to do a song with her, actually. Now, one of the things I read is that you had a a day and evening with Princess Diana Mm. and Prince Charles. Yes. And you performed for them, had dinner with them. Just tell me quickly about that, like how that felt. 
it was one of the most incredible days of, of our career. And we performed, it was a command performance in 1988 in Australia. So there was a lot of uh, big stars there who we were in awe of. And we lined up to receive, you know, you receive on your bow. And I, when they were getting close, I thought, oh my God, Princess Dinah, I'm six feet away from her. Because she was the, the real princess. And she came and she spoke to Russell. Then she came next to me and shook my hand. And I, you know, I, you lower your head. And, and she says, she said to me, I've got two of your albums at home. And I thought, oh my God. <laughs> I thought, wow, I thought, I, I didn't think she would speak to me, you know, but she said, I've got two of your albums at home. She said, I love it. I said, oh, thank you so much. But then we were invited for lunch the next day with these very posh people, the, uh, the Chief Justice of Australia, the Prime Minister. Uh, Russell couldn't make it. I think he had a date with his sister and, and his family down in Melbourne because this was in Sydney. By the way, just on that on that note, that's pretty interesting. So Princess Di can't meet with you today. I I have a, a date with my I have a date with my sister and my family. But yeah, thank you very much. I know. Can you believe it? But we we had a, a private lunch, and Prince Charles was there, Lady Diana, Princess Diana, all these people, and the mayor of this, that, and the other, Prime Minister was there, and then I. I thought, oh, my God, am I going to pick up the right fork at the right time, you know? And uh, But as soon as we, we had the soup and the salad, and then everybody started talking, and it was like laughing, and and Princess Di was two people over from me, and she would she would wave and go, thumbs up, and, you know, Prince Charles is over there. Oh, absolutely marvellous. Stuff like that. <laughs> and it, it was incredible, and I couldn't believe it. I was like, I was pinching myself. I thought, my God. I'm I'm having lunch with Princess Diana, and of course, uh, those moments are uh, they happen once in your lifetime, and it was but it was incredible, it really was. So, Graham, what is in your mind? What's your crowning achievement? What are you most proud of? I'm most proud of the records we've made over our career, simply because I feel very strongly that they'll be around a long time after we are to bring our message to people and to help people bridge that gap with people that can't say things for themselves like we just spoke about. I'm very I'm very proud of our legacy, what we've done uh, over the last almost 50 years. And I think, I think there's more to come from us. I don't think we've achieved everything we want to do yet. Yeah. And then as I was doing a little research, I read something about a show in Mexico in the 1980s. All right. And it, ha- it had something to do with footwear what was and that? shoes and socks and that uh, the crowd rushed you on stage and grabbed some of the band members' shoes off and took them off. And oh, that, is oh, that true? Or It is true, yeah. <laughs> that was, that's a long time ago, yeah. We were in, <laughs> we were in South America and the, there was this a song contest. We were just playing there. And these people yeah. from, from Mexico came up to us, these promoters, and they said, God, why don't you come to Mexico? We'd love you to come to Mexico. And he said, well, nobody's asked us to come to Mexico. So he said, okay, let's make it. So we went to Mexico and they did that. But the it, it was like 82 and the crowds were, in those days, the crowds were screaming all the time, you know, and they would just wanted to get a piece of anything. And, yeah, they all came up on stage and they they kind of grabbed hold of everybody, ripping stuff off. 
And the only thing they could get were the sho shoes and socks, but it was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> and, and to you, there, I'm, there are so many different moments, but mm. is there any one particular moment where you just could pinch yourself and said, this is it? Like, this is mm. the most remarkable thing. Anything that sticks in your mind for, uh, for your career? One of those moments was when we played in Cuba. For the, we'd, we'd wanted to play in Havana for a long time. This was when it was, well, it's still communist now, but it was pretty hard to get in there at that point. And we, we kept saying to promoters in Central America, we'd love to go to Cuba. It says, oh, no, you can't go there. But then I think McCartney went there and a couple of other bands went there. And we said, well, we can go. And he said, okay. So we went to Cuba and we weren't allowed to leave from the US or go back to the US from Cuba. We had to go via Panama because of politics. And we said, okay. And the, and the promoter said, it's going to be a great show. There's going to be 50,000 people there. you know." And he said, it's going to be in, in the center of the city so they can shut all the roads down. And we said, great. And he said... We, we got there and it was incredible. You've seen all these cars from the 40s. And uh, there was a, a hurricane warning. Hurricane Dennis was coming in and the promoter was freaked out. He says, oh, my God, they've got bloody hurricane coming in. And um, we said, we're, we're still going to play, rain or shine. We'll just wait. We're going to play, you know. And so uh, the crowd started to come in. We were there at four in the afternoon for sound check. The crowd started to come. And the promoter would come back to us every half an hour and he'd say, I can't believe it. There's 100,000 people there now. And they kept coming. So in the end, there was almost 200,000 people. And he said, the whole city's shut down. The roads are stopped. And Hurricane Dennis is coming in. I don't know what to do with all these people. And we, we couldn't leave because there were so many people. We couldn't leave. We were there from 4 o'clock. We ended up, it started to rain, and Hurricane Dennis, the fringes of it came in. It started to rain. We couldn't go up. We went on at one in the morning. We were there for like eight hours wow. in this tiny little room backstage, and we, and they just had sandwiches, and we were like, oh, my God. Uh, but there was a, a break came in the rain, and the promoter came, and he says, there's going to be a two-hour break in the weather. You've got to go on there. And we did. It stopped raining. And we did our show to almost 200,000. And, and afterwards, we, I, this was like divine providence. We played the last note and that hurricane came in. All hell broke loose. We get back to the hotel. They're boarding up all the windows with wood. And I mean, it was incredible. That was an incredible experience, especially with the, with the hurricane coming in. You know, whoa, <laughs> amazing. Hundreds of thousands of people were waiting until one in the morning in yeah. hurricane weather. Yeah. And everybody was peaceful and calm. And Yeah, they were incredible. The promoters people would start shouting on the megaphone every few minutes. People, they're going to play. They're going to play. Just be quiet. Okay, we've got umbrellas here. You know, <laughs> it was just a sea of umbrellas. They didn't care. They wanted to see the show. But we wanted to play it more than they wanted to see it. We were going on. We were going to stay there forever. We, we were just going on, and we did. Yeah, what great. an amazing a story and event. So the two of you, um, Graham Russell and Russell Hitchcock, mm. Air Supply, you're touring right now, mm. I, the Lost in Love Experience Tour. 
you've also written four poetry book, books is mm. what I read and yeah. that you recite a poem at every show. Is I do. True? I do. Yeah. And I know it's okay. And, pe people might go, Oh, that's weird. But you know what? It's not weird. It's, and people love it. And when I begin it, I say, I'm going to recite a few words to you and you can hear a pin drop. Uh, it's like, Whoa. And, uh, it's a beautiful thing. And people comment after every show, they say, you know, I love the poem. And for me, it's just an, another estuary of what, what's going on with their supply. You know, it's the words, it's the passion. And I think it enhances what's coming afterwards because we, we're going to play some pretty powerful songs right after that. And this is a, a little moment to, to a breather. And then I tell them, you know, after this, it's going to, all hell's going to break loose. We're going to play you hits you forgotten about a long time ago, you know, and it does. So it's great. It's a good moment. Yeah. Yeah. Well, everybody, so you can see them on tour coming to a city near you. Also, you have a new album, as you mentioned, as you teased. Yeah. That's going to be coming up. And Graham has three songs in his, that he's working on right now. Yep. Gra Graham, wonderful for you to join me on the story behind the song and Consequence. Uh, obviously, such a catalog, timeless catalog that stays with us for all generations. And thank you very much for joining us from Park City, Utah. Thank you, Peter. It's my greatest pleasure having this interview today. Wonderful. That was Graham Russell of legendary super duo Air Supply, sharing his story behind his timeless love anthem, I'm All Out of Love, a song that makes us misty more than 40 years later. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti. That's P as in Peter, C as in Cat, S as in Sam, A-T-H like Harry, Y like Yellow, and at creativemedia.biz. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. And make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network and as always thanks for listening to the story behind the song you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.